text for the sermon this morning comes from Acts chapter 15. It's probably been about a month since we were last in Acts, and so we find ourselves back in Acts. I just want to remind you of some of the context here. So there was a dispute in the church in Antioch, and to resolve that dispute, uh, the, the church in Antioch sent Barnabas and Paul to Jerusalem so that the church in Jerusalem could deliberate about these matters. And uh, we've noted in previous sermons that the church in Antioch, we can, can consider that the presbytery of Antioch, it wasn't just one local congregation, but it was made up of a bunch of different local congregations there in Antioch. And we know the same thing with the church in Jerusalem. We know the church in Jerusalem consisted of several thousand members, probably likely more, maybe even 10,000 members by this point. Those aren't all going to be in one local congregation, but when we hear the uh, church in Jerusalem gathering together, it's uh, the presbytery of Jerusalem gathering together. And so we see here a lot of foundational things for the biblical form of church government, Presbyterianism. And uh, last time uh, we were in Acts 15, we considered the deliberations of the Jerusalem Council, how they based their decisions upon the uh, Word of God. They are elders under the authority of Jesus Christ. They don't have their own authority. They have the authority of Jesus Christ and so are to act in accordance with that. And um, our text um, from Acts 15, 19 through 35 deals with the actual decision that the, that the uh, uh, Jerusalem Council came to. And that's where we're going to turn our attention this morning. So if you'll t- turn to Acts 15, and we'll start reading in verse 19 and go to uh, verse 35. Let's hear God's word this morning as we find it in Acts chapter 15, verses 19 through 35. And this is James speaking here. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who were of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, 
that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. One of the ordination vows that every single elder and pastor in the RPCNA takes calls them to pursue the purity, peace, unity, and progress of the church. The eighth query for ordination reads that you may perform faithfully all the duties of the office to which you have been called. Do you engage to seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit? Do you promise in his strength to live a holy and exemplary life to study and promote the purity, peace, unity, and progress of the church? Now, I draw your attention to that query because a biblical Presbyterian church government will be zealous about these things. It will be zealous to maintain and and pursue the purity, peace, unity, and progress of the church. Now, as we've worked through Acts 15, I've already spent much time speaking of the elders' duty to seek the purity of the church. Elders must be men who defend the truth of the gospel. But today I want us to focus specifically upon the calling to pursue peace. If we are to pray for the peace of the church, as Psalm 122 calls us, it it urges us with the words, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls. Prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, peace be within you. If we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we need to know how we are to pursue that peace. And thankfully, our text gives us a ready example of how to pursue peace in the church. And pursuing peace in the church starts with having no compromise in essentials. Having no compromise in essentials. In other words, we find ourselves right back at the purity of the church. Peace starts with maintaining the purity of the church. Without the truth of the gospel, there is no possibility of peace. After all, if Christ came to bring peace, if we deny the very reason Christ came and said, well, we should just accept everyone and and every belief and, and every practice, we deny the very reason that Christ came. If we do not defend the truth of the gospel and just say, well, doctrine divides, no creed but Christ, we we ultimately do great injustice to Christ's work because Christ came as an exclusive Savior. He came proclaiming the truth. 
We deny the very message of the gospel that Christ died for sinners and calls everyone to repentance, which is a very specific action, and to belief in him, which is a very specific belief. And so we have to acknowledge that doctrine is fundamentally important. What we believe matters. The purity of the church matters. Jesus Christ is not simply the way, but he is also the truth. So the essentials of the faith are necessary, and we must not compromise on them. And so elders have a very particular responsibility to pursue peace by seeking the purity of the church. If the Jerusalem council had decided in favor of of the Judaizers and said, you Gentiles, well, you need to be circumcised, a certain level of peace uh, would have been achieved. The Judaizers would stop fighting with their Gentile counterparts, and they say, well, okay, the the church agrees with us. See, you Gentiles just have to toe the line. You have to come along with us. The Judaizers would stop fighting, and they would be content. But this would not have been gospel peace. Gospel peace is never achieved when the truth is compromised. Elders then must unashamedly, courageously, and boldly maintain matters of first importance in the faith. And I want us to consider this in two different levels. And the first level is that all Christians, no matter what stripe or denomination they are in, are to agree on the basics of the Christian faith. There are indeed matters of first importance in the faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, we read, Paul say this to the church there, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. In other words, Paul says there that Christ's death and resurrection is a matter of fundamental importance to Christianity. This is one of those essentials. And we find another paradigm for matters of first importance in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. These are the matters of first importance that every single Christian must believe. And holding fast to these means that Christians from different denominations can find agreement and fellowship. Even though they might disagree on some things, they have that common faith in Christ. They have those essentials figured out. That Jesus Christ died and rose again according to the Scriptures. That God is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. These fundamentals in the faith. And here we might say, not just that we have peace with these things, but we even have unity with these things. We are of one mind on these fundamentals. And so, that's the first, and and what we consider the, the highest level of holding fast to essentials. Then we also have our distinct distinctives depending on what denomination we come from. We here have our distinctives as Reformed 
Presbyterians. Well, we share 90, about 95% of the same belief with many other Christians. There are reasons we are a distinct denomination. And so the, the second level of essentials uh, is what I'm going to call denominational distinctives. And, and some might call these non-essentials, and we can debate about what the best term for this is. But the point here is that we are not saying that you must believe in, in the distinctives of this denomination to be saved. One can believe they, they are allowed to sing hymns in corporate worship and, and still be saved. One can believe that only adults are to be baptized and still be saved. And we can have right and warm Christian fellowship with those who have such belief. But if, if someone denies the Trinity or denies the penal substitution of Christ. They are denying the very fundamentals of what it means to be Christian. And we can have no fellowship with such people. Now, for the sake of peace within our denomination, elders, and I'm talking specifically about elders here, elders must believe in and accept the system of doctrine and manner of worship set forth in our confessions. That is the duty of elders, and that is one of the vows they take. Those are fundamental essentials that allow one to be an elder. And here, elders must, once again, go beyond peace and have unity. They must have one mind around what our confessions talk about. You simply cannot have elders who say, well, I'm not sure about uh, Presbyterian, this whole Presbyterian church government thing. No, if he's going to be an elder in a Presbyterian church, he has to believe in uh, the biblical form of church government. He has to believe in Presbyterianism. There must be unity on these denominational distinctives for elders. But you as the unordained members are granted a bit more freedom here. You are not required to have that absolute unity, that one mind, that... And, and agreement with everything that the RPCNA believes. Rather than being asked to believe in and accept the system of doctrine and manner of worship, you are asked to submit in the Lord to the teaching and government of this church as being based upon the Scripture. We see the distinction there. There, you are being asked to pursue peace. You might not have 100% agreement with what the RPCNA teaches, but for the sake of peace... You're willing to submit to that teaching and government. And so we can look at here at, at things in different levels of essentials. I want you to know that holding to the matters of first importance means that we can indeed have Christian fellowship with those with whom we do not have 100% agreements. One of the uh, great dangers in, in some of the theological debates that we have today is that we lose sight of, of a, a gradation in, in matters of importance. In our divided age, it seems that almost everything can, can rise to the extent of being a gospel issue, whether that be having a three-point sermon or having communion three times a year. Sometimes these, these debates can become so heated that we can question the very Christianity of the other person. But we must always keep things in perspective. We must understand what the essentials of the faith are. And yes, we can certainly have debate about some of these things. 
It's good for us to have debate about these matters. We need to understand their place of importance in the context of the church. Grace and wisdom need to be used in everything done in Christian love. It's helpful for us to remember here that even though a sect of the Pharisees believed that it was necessary to be circumcised, Luke tells us in Acts 15 verse 5, these were still Pharisees who believed still Pharisees who believed. Even though they were called those who believed, the Jerusalem Council sought the peace of the church by having no compromise in the essentials of the faith. Yes, these Pharisees believed, but the early church did not just allow these men to continue teaching their false doctrine. Instead, the Jerusalem makes it very clear, and they pursue the purity of the church. They make it abundantly clear to the Gentiles that these men, these certain men who are teaching that unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved, they make it absolutely clear, we have nothing to do with these men. We, we do not agree with them. They are not teaching sound doctrine. Notice in verse 24 of our text, verse 24, the Jerusalem Council says, Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Jerusalem Council wants to make one thing very clear that you do not have to be circumcised to be saved. These men are teaching heresy. They are wrong. We give them no such commandment to teach these things. Jerusalem Council pursues and diligently pursues the purity of the church. And we, and we see what happens when the purity of the church is not sought when the purity of the church is not maintained. Our text says that these Judaizers, these certain men, they, they taught false doctrine to the troubling of the Gentiles and the perversion of the gospel. The idea here is that they were crowding in upon the Gentiles. Maybe you've been in a situation before where you're having a conversation to, with somebody, and, and this person just kept getting closer and closer, and he was crowding in upon you, and, and you, you eventually had to back away because he was invading your, your personal space. Well, that's what these Judaizers were doing. They were crowding in upon the Gentiles. They, they were surrounding them and making them uncomfortable. They were, they were uh, disturbing their conscience and, and demanding adherence to the ceremonial law. One of the effects of not maintaining the purity of the church is it leads to unsettled souls. Anytime the gospel is added to, it leads to unsettled souls. Christ came to bring gospel peace. He came to cleanse us from the guilt of sin, not just those feelings of guilt, but from actual guilt as well. He came to free us from the condemning wrath of God and the curse of the law. Whenever people come into the church and say, 
Oh, you are saved by faith in Christ plus works. You're saved by faith in Christ plus baptism. You're saved in Christ plus faithfulness to the covenants. You're saved in Christ plus using this particular psalm book or using this particular Bible translation or, or believing in superlapsarianism. Whenever anything, is, whenever anything is added to Christ, it leads to unsettled souls. It leads to consciences that are troubled. Consciences that ask, maybe there is something I, I need to do to add to Christ's work. Maybe, maybe Christ's work isn't sufficient enough. Any addition to the gospel robs the believer of his liberty in Christ. And this is what, what is, is what is at stake when we neglect to pursue the purity of the church. It leads to a fundamental rift in the peace of the church, and specifically the peace in the conscience of the believer. And so elders must maintain the peace of the gospel that Christ has purchased by not com compromising on the essentials of the Christian faith. But elders must also pursue peace by urging members to show love in indifferent things. There will come times in the church where elders will need to assess a, a particular situation. And the elders will conclude that to pursue the peace of the church, they need to ask the members to do a certain thing for the sake of love. This is what we see in the decision of the Council of Jerusalem. Peace is sought as the elders ask the church to follow certain principles of conduct. Notice uh, what we find there in, in our text. While they told the Gentiles, you do not have to be circumcised to be saved, they do say that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, as you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Now, as you hear that, you might scratch your head a little bit. Jerusalem Council has just said, you don't need to be circumcised. They've removed, it, seemed, it can seem as though they removed one requirement, the, the requirement of circumcision, and instead replaced it with four others. You don't need to be, to be circumcised to be saved, but you do need to do all these things to be saved. But we have to understand that's not what's happening at all. Instead, the council here is urging peace and love. You will immediately know that three of these four things all pertain to Jewish dietary laws that were connected to the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Jews in the first century refused to eat food sacrificed to idols because they saw that as being intimately connected with pagan worship. The Gentiles would give no second thought to, to buying a slab of meat from the, the temple butchery. But the Jews would have no 
no dealings at all with such meat. They saw it as a condoning of idolatry, of not being entirely holy. Also, Jews in obedience to the command in Deuteronomy 12.23 refused to eat blood. Deuteronomy 12.23 says, Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is life. You may not eat the life with the meat. This is also why they, the Jews would not eat animals that were strangled. Because a strangled animal is going to retain all the blood in the meat. Did not deal properly with the blood. But the, these three things are all Jewish dietary laws connected to the ceremonial laws. And yet these three are matters of indifference to the Christian faith. We've talked about matters of, of fundamental importance earlier, though the, those essentials to the faith. But here we have matters of indifference. A matter of indifference is something that, when viewed in a vacuum, is neither right nor wrong. You might view these as matters of opinion or preference. For example, it's, it's neither wrong, right nor wrong to eat a, a strangled chicken. We have freedom to, to use certain whatever butchering techniques we want. You'll, if you want to only eat vegetables, well, well, that's up to you. You have freedom there. If you don't want to drink coffee, well, there's to be no judgment there. These are, are certain matters of indifference and personal preference. And the first thing, three things the Jerusalem Council commands the Gentiles are matters of indifference precisely because Christ has fulfilled ceremonial law. And in fulfilling the ceremonial law, he's, he's abolished it. He told Peter, rise, kill, and eat. You no longer have to observe these dietary laws. Christ broke down that middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. These are indifferent matters. Then we need to ask, well, what about sexual immorality? That fourth matter, why is sexual immorality added to these three ceremonial laws? Well, there are some commentators who will argue that sexual immorality here does not refer to the basic duties of the Seventh Commandment. But instead, they argue well, these refer to the ceremonial laws regarding sexual purity. For example, in Leviticus 18.19, the Lord told Israel that they were not to have intercourse with their wife while she was on her period. In this way, they'll say the sexual immorality spoken of here pertains solely to those ceremonial laws. And yet I would argue that it's far better for us to read this as referring to the basic requirements of the Seventh Commandment. So this isn't just a matter of indifference here. The Gentiles had to remain sexually pure. They come from a context of great sexual immorality. Roman, if you look back in Roman uh, history of the Roman Empire, you'll find uh, a society that was just filled with adultery and fornication. And often much of that uh, sexual immorality was connected with pagan worship. Part of your uh, worship to these pagan gods, you would go and have intercourse with the temple prostitutes. And the Jerusalem Council wants to make it abundantly clear to their Jewish brothers as well as to the Gentiles, 
Sexual immorality has no place in the Christian life. As Christians, the Gentiles must live in purity. This is something that comes up again and again in the writings of, of, of Scripture. The need for the Gentile churches to practice sexual immorality. It was an ongoing issue, as it is an ongoing issue in today's culture. So, this sexual immorality isn't a matter of indifference. This is a matter of fundamentals, a matter of essentials in the Christian life. And so, what what we see here is, is we see the Jerusalem Council give advice regarding three things that are indifferent and one thing that is essential to Christian living. But then we have to ask ourselves the question, why does the Jerusalem Council ask them to observe these things? Why did they give counsel regarding indifferent things? If, If they're indifferent, well, surely they have the freedom to do what they want. They have liberty in Christ to, to eat this meat or, or to not eat it. Some might argue that, this, well, this seems to be an abuse of church power to ask them to do something that they're not required to. Well, James argues in Acts fifteen twenty one. He argues for these, these restrictions uh, with these words, Acts fifteen twenty one. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogue every Sabbath. What James is saying here is that throughout the world there are Jews who have been dispersed among the Gentiles. For years and years, decades and and even centuries, these Jews have been taught the law of Moses. They've been taught they have to keep these dietary laws as as part of being holy in reference to all the the pagans around them. They cannot eat this meat. And now a lot of these Jews have become Christians. And yet that teaching still remains with them. It's been drilled into them. It's been hammered home to them that to be a follower of God, this is the conduct you are to have. And this has given them very tender consciences regarding these matters. And because of that, this teaching isn't to be thrown out in one night. While the Jewish Christians might now have liberty in Christ, a liberty they weren't able to enjoy before the coming of Christ, a liberty that might allow them to eat certain types of meat, yet because of the years of their instruction, they simply cannot be at peace in their mind about these things yet. And also the church was to have a level of patience and understanding with them. In other words, James is is saying change doesn't happen suddenly in the church. Change happens slowly. The process of, of sanctification is a slow one. Reformation will not always occur in the blink of an eye. I appreciate what John Calvin, I think John Calvin's quoting an old French proverb here, but John Calvin remarks that old ceremonies should be buried with some honor. 
This is what we see the early church doing. They are encouraging the Gentile believers to be patient with their Jewish brothers for the sake of peace and love. And in being patient with them, wait for them to get caught up to, to where they are and, and enjoying their liberty. Jerusalem Council is asking them to give up aspects of their liberty so they can walk with one another in peace. As we pursue the peace of the church here, when it comes to matters of indifference in the Christian life, we too must show love. We must recognize in matters of indifference that though they are indifferent, yet we cannot ultimately use these for our own pleasure. As remember, we're not our own. That's, you know, we often, as Americans, we, we always think of ourselves first and foremost as the individual. And we make much ado about our rights. I have the right to do this. We have to remember as Christians, we are not our own. We, we belong to the body of Christ. When we do things, we either directly or, and, or indirectly or negatively and, or positively affect the rest of our fellow believers. That extends even to what we do, might do in our private homes. It, it can affect what we do to, it can affect our fellow believers because we're all members of one body. So as we think through matters of indifference and, and thinking through whether or not we should do them, I want, I want to encourage you to ask two things, and, and hopefully this will, will help you think through, okay, should I pursue this, this matter of indifference or, 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 or should I not pursue it? And the first thing I, we need to consider here, as with everything you must do, you must do it to the glory of God. Paul in Romans 14, verse 8 says, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. We are to do everything to the Lord. We are to do everything to the glory of God. So when wondering if you should do something that is indifferent, ask yourself the question, is this to God's glory? Am I living to the Lord here, or am I ultimately living to myself? See, a Christian can never do anything in his life for his own pleasure. A matter of indifference is neutral when, like I said, when it's viewed in a vacuum, when we take it out of the vacuum and consider some of the circumstances and, and the events around that, suddenly it can become sinful if it fails to give glory to God. So that's, that's the first thing. We need to do things to the glory of God. But second, we must do all things in love. This is Paul's great encouragement in 1 Corinthians 13, that Christians are bound by the law of charity, and they cannot do things that might cause others to stumble. They are to love their neighbors as themselves. Paul says in Romans 14, verses 14 through 15, I know and am convinced by the Lord that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Christians are not to destroy fellow believers with indifferent things. Rather, they are to pursue 
things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. So when it comes to matters of indifference, we must ask, does this cause my brother or sister to stumble? Am I showing love to them? Because if it does cause them to stumble and, and, and you continue to do it, you are ultimately failing to glorify God in this matter of indifference. Paul would go so far as to say, you are destroying the work of God for the sake of whatever the matter of indifference is. You are destroying the work of God. Those are weighty words. Gillespie would write that a matter of indifference can become sinful if it has an evil use. In other words, if my flagrant use of liberty results in hindering peace in the church, my liberty is resulting in evil, and I should voluntarily restrain my liberty for the edification of my brothers. And this is a needful word in our day and age. There are many Reformed folk who are much too quick to flamboyantly use their liberty in Christ. They perhaps look at the older generation of believers in the church who had grave concerns about things like movies and television, alcohol, dancing, and certain types of music, and they shake their heads at them. They'll they'll sometimes rub it in their faces that, oh, I have liberty in Christ. I I have a right to do these things. And I don't care what you think. They'll make all sorts of social media posts about the beer they are enjoying or the movies they are watching or, or the music they are listening to. All the while, they are grieving their fellow Christians. They are destroying peace and all for what? All for a bit of pleasure and carnal satisfaction. That's not what tends to edification. I want to ask here, are there areas that you are hindering the peace of the church by not making right use of your liberty in Christ? We as Christians should be eager and ready to restrain our liberty in Christ if it leads to greater peace and harmony in the body of Christ. This might mean we give second thought to what we post on the internet. It might mean we we don't listen to that piece of music when... There are weaker brothers around. And we ought to restrain our liberty with joy. The Gentiles were free to eat what they wanted. They were free in Christ. But when they heard the decision of the Jerusalem council that when you're with your Jewish brothers, don't eat this. We hear that they responded with joy. They gladly refrained from eating certain things. They prized peace in the church over the use of their freedom. In verse 31, we read, verse 31 of our text, we read, when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragements. They rejoiced over its encouragements. Even though their liberty was reigned in a bed, they rejoiced because they saw a path forward. They saw the path of peace and took that path. Now we who, who recognize and know our Christian liberty need to be careful with how we use that liberty. Those who are weaker in the faith need to be very careful as well. 
The danger they have is that they cast judgment upon those who recognize their freedom. And when judgment is cast for things that Christ has given no commandments, we effectively add to the law of God, and we are just like the Pharisees. We add our man-made traditions to the law of God and make our traditions the standard of faith. This is where we, we need to very carefully hear what Paul says in Romans 14, verse 1. Paul says there, Receive one who is weak in the faith, receive them, but not to dispute over doubtful things. The weaker brother is not to continue pressing his point. He's not to cast judgment upon the freedom that others have. The temptation often for those who are weak is to raise a matter of indifference to a matter of essentials. And this is what we ultimately find that the certain men who were teaching the necessity of circumcision were doing. They're raising a matter of indifference. It, it doesn't matter if you got circumcised. That's why uh, Paul did not circumcise Titus, but he circumcised Timothy. This was a matter of indifference. It didn't matter if they got circumcised, but these certain men were raising this matter of indifference to a matter of essentials, and they were judging those who knew their freedom on that basis. This was dreadfully wrong. Christians who are weak, those who are weak in the faith, need to be very, very careful not to cast judgment upon the freedom that others have in Christ. And so in, in matters of indifference, we must pursue peace by showing love. Love must characterize our interactions. Love must characterize our discussions on these things. We must be very patient and careful, no matter what side of the fence we are on. I want to ask, are there areas that you are hindering the peace of the church by disputing about doubtful and indifferent things? Are you raising some indifferent matters to level of essentials. And if you are, Scripture comes to you this morning saying, don't dispute about doubtful things, but rather pursue love. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 4, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. They may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes, rather than godly edification which is in faith. Paul says, don't be spending time on these doubtful disputes. Don't be spending time on these matters of indifference, but rather focus on things that tend to edification. So we must pursue peace by showing love in indifferent things. Instead of engaging in doubtful disputations, let's pursue the fellowship we have in Christ let us, lead, let us labor toward the things that lead to godly edification, the purity of the church. Let us be glad, like the Gentiles, in the encouragement of the Jerusalem Council. The decision of the Jerusalem Council to defend the purity and peace of the church. 
Let us be glad and so also pursue the path of purity and peace. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for your word. Lord, uh, we are in much need of wisdom. Lord, when it comes to matters of debate in the church, Lord, we need wisdom. Our Father, it's our prayer that um, when it comes to matters of indifference, that, Lord, we would show love. Lord, we would be ready and willing to show love. When it comes to matters of essentials, Lord, we pray that we would have no compromise, that we would be bold and ready to stand for the truth. Lord, we pray that you would help us to know the distinctions in these things, that indifferent matters may never come to the level of essentials, and that, Lord, we might never lower essentials to the matter of indifference. Father, grant us wisdom in this, that, Lord, we would be a church to your glory and praise.